this is a wave maker conversation. This is the same sex marriage episode. We're bringing you this episode as the Supreme Court is hearing a case that may indeed end up having the effect of legalizing or having same sex marriages recognized in every state of the union. What I really want to find out today is is there anything that I, as a heterosexual married man, might be able to learn from same-sex marriages that could help me in my marriage? To answer this question, I turn to the Gottman Institute, uh, which is maybe the foremost institute on on research into relationships, Uh, and they turned me on to the the gentleman who I'm about to introduce you to, Sam Garanzini, Executive Director of the Gay Couples Institute in San Francisco, and joining us as well, uh, and she's going to be a voice of wisdom on my left side here from Atlanta, because she's visiting Atlanta, is Deborah Hughes, president and CEO of the Susan B. Anthony Museum and House in Rochester, New York. She married her partner uh, in what year? Uh, January of 2012. June June of 2012. June of 2012. Do you you remember the date? The 23rd. Thank goodness you remember the date. So we've got uh, Deborah Hughes here, but Sam, I want to focus on you first. First of all, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Great. Thank you. Glad to be here. And I'm calling you, you're in San Francisco, so it's uh, uh, right now I'm speaking to you at quarter afternoon. And um, uh, here's my first question. You have a practice as the, as the executive director, as a therapist who runs the Gay Couples Institute in San Francisco. Uh, just give us your credentials. You have seen how many uh, gay and lesbian couples in your practice since you started this institute in 2007? Oh, that's a great question. Um, since we started, we have probably seen uh, somewhere between 500 to 700 couples. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's somewhere, it varies between 100 to 200 per year. What can we learn from gay and lesbian couples? Is there something different about the dynamics of those marriages and even different between men marrying men and women who've married women. Is there something in those dynamics that we can learn from? Uh, you're, you're wanting to, me to speak to that from the, the research perspective? Well, you know, from both the research perspective and, and your own experience in the therapy room. It's kind of a neat question about how, like, what can, what can maybe heterosexual couples learn from gay and lesbian couples? And one of the more pivotal uh Articles that was as that topic started was done by John Gottman, and it was in the Journal of Homosexuality in 2003. So it's a, it's a little bit dated, but it's not too far back there. And what John, all of John's research with many, many heterosexual couples, and then plenty of gay and lesbian couples, what it was really all about is just a bit of background is observational research where he would just watch them have a events of the day conversation or a conflict discussion and the whole time that they're having these interactions they would be they would have their physiology monitored and then the couples themselves would go back and watch a videotape of their interaction and report what they were feeling at that time that part of the interaction was happening so John's observational uh John's observations of those couples and their observations of themselves, and then the same with straight couples also, 
really showed a, a few things that that were really unique to same-sex couples. And from that, there that those findings, which I'll tell you in just a moment, those findings became a jump-off point for a lot of other research. So the findings were simply that same-sex couples tend to be kinder to one another when they argue. And they also have an easier time discussing, uh, especially matters of sex and sexuality, than their heterosexual counterparts. So that's been, uh, those findings from the, from John's research that especially that same sex couples are kinder to one another. What he was really pointing out is that same sex couples are slower to get contemptuous with one another, slower than a heterosexual couple. And contempt was really all the vile, bad stuff that you would uh, expect in a relationship like name-calling, belligerence, eye-rolling, sarcasm that's intended to hurt, mockery, things like that. What he found is that a heterosexual couple will, will much more quickly go towards those kinds of uh, interaction patterns than a same-sex couple will. As At the same time, same-sex couples tend to discuss sex and sexuality a lot more often than their heterosexual counterparts. John tells a neat story about a heterosexual couple in his lab, and they were discussing sex and sexuality. And the way that they discussed it, though, you couldn't, you couldn't tell really what they were discussing. They would say things like uh, where he would say to his wife, well, um, well, how do you think it's going? And she would say, well, you know, we're, we're doing a little bit better. And he would say, well, yeah, well, yeah, you know, we're trying harder. And she would say, yeah, well, we should just keep trying harder. And it was, okay, okay. And it was the end. And you really don't know if they're talking about sex and sexuality or putting a new roof on the house. And whereas a, a same-sex couple routinely, if they were going to talk about sex and sexuality, it was much more transparent and overt and sometimes graphic and that they would flow in and out of those kind of conversations readily. So without getting too, without getting too graphic, you know, even though it would increase the ratings, you know, but, but without <laughs> getting too graphic, give me a sense of, of, uh, you know, of, of what they would see a gay couple discussing. And by the way, it's like, I, I, I personally hate talking about sex in a lab. Just, just uh, you know, but, 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 nevertheless, the, the, despite the fact that it was in a lab, what, what would, what would gay uh, and lesbian couples be talking about? Sure. Well, um, one, one uh, story that he, he, that John talks about regularly is in the the couple, in the, a gay couple in the lab. They would say thing, they would say things like, "Well, um, you know." You know that, uh, what do they talk about? Well, don't you think that the guy that picks up our trash is kind of, he's kind of cute, don't you think? And the other one would go, eh, he's okay, he's not quite my type, but I could see how he's kind of your type. And so they would, they would say things like that, as opposed to try to take that conversation and overlay it on your average heterosexual couple, where imagine Jim saying to Carol, hey, you know, uh, Claire down the street, she's kind of cute, don't you think? <laughs> and I, I mean, Michael, 
I don't know if that would necessarily fly in your marriage, but for a lot of heterosexual couples, that wouldn't. Well, it would fly. It would fly for about ten seconds, and then uh, to, to and, then, and then to quote <laughs> you, it would lead to name calling, belligerence, and sarcasm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the take home is um, John really found that it's easier for it was easier for same sex couples to. Uh, talk about sex and sexuality and what John has really strived to do and he and his wife Julie have done a really uh, couple cool things with their institute to try to facilitate this with straight couples mainly is um, just to get straight couples talking about sex and sexuality more because we do know that couples that have that talk about sex more have more sex I can I I have had at least 100 sessions that I can remember that I off the top of my head would come to mind where couples would say to me, you know, we're, we really want to work on our sex lives. And I'll say, well, how much do you talk with one another about sex? And the answer is 100% of the time. Oh, we don't talk about it. And I say, well, that makes a lot of sense because we know that couples that talk about it have it. And those that don't talk about it don't have it. You know, all talk, no action. But in this case, it's like the more you talk, the more action. Exactly. Exactly. So, so let me ask you. Now, I'm really fascinated, though, by this. You know, because we could all relate to this in every relationship we have. The idea of, of the idea of uh, again going back to that first point, being contemptuous. And so, I want to bring Deborah into this too, because Deborah Hughes. I neglected to mention is also an ordained Baptist minister. So she, I imagine Deborah, you have heard all kinds of stories and married or not, this idea of being contemptuous, acting contemptuously to another person is very destructive, but just, do you have anything, is there any observation, any personal experience you have with this idea of, you know, of where you draw the line between just sort of angry and being contemptuous. Yeah, the the whole notion of contemptuous behavior in a relationship is is kind of scary. When I think about um, the community that's evolved, uh, it's a it's a common joke, but it's also true that often um, in the gay community, because we were closeted for a lot of years, everybody knew everyone. And I think that there's almost a societal norm that says you need to treat each other well. It's the don't burn any bridges. Uh, it's not unusual to to be at a dinner party with people that you dated, who knew other people that you dated. Uh, and we know that in domestic situations, pressure from the family or the society helps to control bad behavior. And I wonder about uh, that that close-knit sense of the community, if that's been one of the influences. I don't know what you think about that, Sam. That's really eloquently put. I think, uh, you know, it kind of gives this, like, uh, small village quality of uh, of our culture. And um, I think there's a lot of validity to that. To, uh, I think to sprinkle around that idea is also... Oh, so Esther Esther Rothblum at the at San Diego State University. Her research through her career has been fascinating. About she has really been the trailblazer about looking at interactions between same sex couples and trying to figure out why. And so, Deborah, you just offered like maybe we're kinder to one another because we got this kind of small village quality and. You, you gotta, you're gonna need, we're gonna need to lean on each other later. Um, Esther looked into that. I know 
other researchers, um, uh, Dr. Green of Alliant University in San Francisco looked at other factors as maybe it's possibly because of in a same-sex relationship, there are similarities in the in earning uh, earning ability, financial earning ability, because they're dealing with either two males or two females. So they can kind of that power differential that comes from that gender role overlay of earning equality um, is not there. Uh, so. He looked at it from that perspective. It's also been just said flat out that, you know, if men are from Mars and women are from Venus kind of thing, which has been heavily unsupported, all that done, uh, I think it's John Gray stuff that men are from Mars, women are from Venus. But the, the notion sticks in the public's mind when maybe it's easier for two Martians to fix a particular thing or two people from Venus to fix a, a particular thing rather than having to kind of cross that, that language barrier. So all those things have been looked at about maybe it's a financial thing uh, of earning ability or it's a gender role and being not necessarily being there. Um, and then Deborah's idea of the societal influence is, uh, is valid too. And the, the research is out as to which answer is right. Um, I guess I just offered those to make the thing more confusing. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you, I know you have you have a list of certain characteristics, and I know when, when I first became aware, and, and I think John Gottman's work was already out there in a big way, but, but if, if I remember correctly, 60 Minutes had done a big piece a number of years ago on his, mm-hmm. the, the Love Lab, where, you know, where, and, and referring to what you were just talking about, it's you know, observing how couples fight uh, would help John Gottman predict whether their marriages or relationships would last. And I guess it got to this contemptuous thing. If they fought contemptuously with real belligerence and name-calling and made it very personal, that was bad. And he came up with this ratio, if I remember correctly, a five-to-one ratio that couples who said five positive things to their partner for every one negative thing had a very good shot at a successful relationship. And once the balance started shifting, that's where you got into trouble. Um, so, so, and by the way, uh, just not to change the subject too much, I actually used that five to one magic ratio when it was, it was Mother's Day and I hadn't planned anything for my wife with my children. And I thought quickly on my feet and I thought, I know kids will give her the magic ratio. And we took her out to lunch and I told them, now listen, this is substantiated by the best research. You say five positive things to mom for every one negative thing. And they listened to me. And as soon as my wife came into the restaurant, they raced through those five positive things to get to the one zinger. And my wife... And my wife looked at me and she said, what is going on here? I said, well, that's the five to one ratio. And she didn't, she didn't think it was very well applied in this particular case. But, but that five to one ratio often keeps me in check. I often think, am, am, am I within that ratio? And it's a great piece of actionable intelligence. So translate that now. So what are you seeing in your office when couples come in for therapy and you know you've already said that the research shows shows there is less generally speaking less belligerence in same-sex relationships when they argue but uh it does the five to one ratio hold up or can you not get that specific or and are there other is there a list of criteria that you look for that says okay this is a healthy relationship and this is or this is veering towards unhealthy uh and by the way this is 
very particular what I'm seeing to same-sex couples. If, if your listeners could take one thing away from this whole thing, I, I would hope that somewhere on a piece of paper right now they're they're writing the number five and then slash one. If they just take that five to one ratio, the their world and probably all of our worlds would be a different place. Um, it applies with your significant other, with your children, with your boss, with your direct reports, with the water bottle delivery person. Um, humans thrive in, in an atmosphere of positivity. And it didn't matter whether you were gay, straight, or whatever. It was all about that five-to-one ratio. And that's really been expanded upon. That was... John has even said that was one of the most important things that he found in all of his stuff. And I totally agree. So we just apply that clinically in our, uh, in our clinics now, because we've got the one in San Francisco and Los Angeles and San Diego, and now we open in Manhattan. I tell my therapist, I say, Hey, remember that five to one ratio thing? How you're supposed to be sitting there kind of looking and seeing if it's more positive than negative. I want you to have that with your clients. If you're going to call them out on a negative pattern that you're seeing them engage in in front of you, you better have five positive things to catch them doing something right. And since we've started doing that, the, the people's experience of coming to couples therapy has even gotten more fun. I even go on to tell them, you know, it probably doesn't even matter what kind of couples therapy you're doing or the kind of what you're doing, even at all in your business, even if you're a waiter working with uh, people um, in your section, you, if you have five to one positive interactions to negative with the people that are around you, you will find that um, the experience totally excels for everyone involved. So that's what, that's what we have found. And it's not just a, a gay or straight thing. Well, it's not a gay or straight thing, but now let me ask you, and I'll ask Deborah Hughes this too. And Deborah, you know, being, I mean, she's in the studio in part because she is a lesbian who is married, but she also happens to be, as I've said, an ordained Baptist minister. And you know, every religious leader I've ever known puts great, great stock in the power of words. And so I just wonder, I would just love to hear her reaction to the five to one ratio and how that plays out in her different worlds. When I, first when we talk about contempt for other people, I'm I'm trying to stay in touch with that reality that that exists. Um, The, um, when I do premarital counseling with people, the couples that I find who are really enjoying each other are the ones who say we laugh together. Uh, they laugh at themselves. They laugh at each other. The people who have a, a very deep sense of self-awareness. And I think that's another place where the gay and lesbian community has benefited from oppression. It, similarly to our relationship to God or the creator or, or, or the universe. Uh, if you have the world telling you you don't have that relationship and you spend time sorting it out, you can come to a really deep, very profound relationship that, that no one else can mess with. And I have to stop you there because uh, you know the words benefited from oppression are usually not uttered together and not that you know we want that and it's a positive thing but that's it just happens to be uh, i guess something that strengthens people in many ways you through a lot of pain i, I you know, think the you know the whole it gets better project 
um, which is a way to encourage youngsters who are suffering tremendously and are trying to make decisions about whether just to live through that pain. Acknowledges the fact that it, it's not a good, um, but it, but there is a beneficial outcome of people who, uh, you know, if if someone says to you, you know, you have no connection with God and you uh, sort that out on your own. I, most of my friends who are gay clergy, and there's actually a lot more than people are aware of, um, have these very joyous, delightful relationships with God because they had to sort it out. Uh, and I think then when someone comes to a relationship having a self-awareness, then they know in the middle of those awful arguments, you know, I'm really actually not mad at you at all. You triggered something that happened for me. Or I, I'm not distressed. I'm really anxious about this. Or I don't even know what I'm anxious about. But it's not you. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm Michael Shoulder. We are going to break some more new ground in this conversation, so please stay with me. First, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Harry's.com. And for those of you who, like me, have lost their patience waiting for the drugstore attendant to unlock the case with the high-end razors that we buy for a close shave, Harry's.com has solved a problem. The company's founders bought a factory in Germany that's been making high-end blades for nearly a century, and they sell the razors and all the other shaving supplies for significantly less, delivered right to your home, so you don't have to go to the drugstore. If you've never tried Harry's, you can benefit from the Wavemaker discount. You go on to harrys.com, order the $15 starter kit, and use the promotional code WAVEMAKER for a $5 discount. Again, that's harrys.com. Promotional code at checkout is the magic word. WAVEMAKER. WAVEMAKER opens so many doors. Back to the conversation in a moment. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Want great deals on products and unique experiences in your neighborhood? Look no further than CBS Local Offers, which brings you the best local deals in your community with everything from enticing restaurants to exciting events. Go to offers.cbslocal.com today. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Now, you mentioned the Get Better Project, which if I remember correctly, that that is this public awareness campaign for young gay and lesbian people. And, to, and transgender. And transgender uh, to say, okay, you might be feeling at the very bottom right now, but give it time. It will get better. And so that leads to the following question for both of you. Is there a difference... Because I, I, I do want to get back to the, the you know, uh, gay and lesbian couples and comparing them to heterosexual couples. Is there a difference between generations? And I, w- I would think if there is, it might be more pronounced in the gay and lesbian community, given how much things have changed uh, on that front, uh, as evidenced by the Supreme Court just hearing this case right now. But let me ask Deborah first. Is, is, there, is there a difference in the generations? Yes, I think a huge difference. Uh, what we see now for a lot of youth is um, lack of comprehension about what it was like to be in the closet, what the very real risks were, what the risks to uh, your health and your job and your living situation. And we have people, you know, I, I remember one time when I lived in Detroit with a partner and we started to get some horrific harassing material from a neighbor in our building. 
and we felt we couldn't go to the police because we felt that the police might victimize us if we were to come out, and both of us would have lost our jobs and we would have been thrown out of our housing. So that's a part of my experience, and now I, I was in a wedding three years ago where 400 people of all ages in a good Presbyterian church came out to celebrate our love and our wedding together. I can't believe the change that we've seen. And I think now young people uh, have an anger at the injustice that we didn't have. We had um, we had our own homophobia that uh, allowed us to tolerate staying in the closet and being very careful often. You had your own homophobia. I don't quite understand that. Meaning, it was a, it was it's an internalized homophobia where you um, are so aware of the risks and the dangers and yet you also expected it you, you think of it as natural that society responds that way that society doesn't respect you that society won't welcome you that you have to make up people that you're dating or not acknowledge relationships uh, you know for many of the early years for me we only met people by their first name because it was too risky to know a person's last name that and that is as recently as what year that was as recently as 1987 to 1993 that, I didn't know that. That that's incredible to me. Sam uh, Garanzini, does that? Uh, were, were you? Uh, you are how old, Sam? Um, I'm 37. Were you around for that level of of caution and fear? Don't give your last name. No. Um, and I, I tell people I got. Um, I, I was. I think I was very lucky because um, I had an uncle on both sides. Uh, my my dad's my dad's brother and my stepmom, who's basically my mom, she raised me. My stepmom's brother were both out gay men, and they had really trailblazed the way for me in my family. I still went through the usual kind of teenage stuff of you know hiding it or this or that or um, not wanting you know being closeted. Um, but then, but when I came out, people in the family kind of looked at me and was like, and they said, they basically said, well, what, what was your problem anyway? You know, why, why did, why did it take, you were the only one waiting for you. Um, it, it wasn't, it's never been a big deal to us. So, um, I was able to come out at 19 and, um, I think a, another significant influence was when I was 19, um, this was back in the day when America online and just the online internet world was just starting. And we now know because we, we hold the internet in our hands and our cell phone, um, that the, the internet has done amazing things to connect people from all over the planet. And it's, in a lot of ways made uh, the gay community, it's heavily influenced the, the gay community in the ability to find other people like you. And I think that's really influenced youth today and the and youth that, are, that grew up in that, like my kind of cohort and generation that are now in their 30s and 40s and 20s, they experienced that the world is actually a very fluid and, and uh, reachable place, and you can kind of be a lot of different things. And so I didn't have to grow up in that. I, I believe the, when I read an, a piece about you a number of years ago, mm -hmm. you had a partner. Mm -hmm. Have you gotten married? 
you know, we're getting married in August. <laughs> hey, good for you. You are. So, yeah. so this is, and, and it'll be broadcast live by Wavemaker Conversations, of course. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> so so uh, you're getting married in August. Is it a big wedding? No, uh, 35 people. So was there any debate because here's what occurs to me it's a, it, i remember my father was a stand-up comic and i and i remember one of the routines he used to do was about relationships and at the time and this was a long time ago maybe in the 60s or 70s uh you know people would start to live together right that that was like a big deal a big thing oh they're living together and i remember him saying on stage you know they call it trial marriage trial marriage is dangerous it could lead to the real thing and so and so, you know, I know there must be a lot of gay couples out there right now. And this Supreme Court case is actually bringing some troubling stuff up to the surface because not everybody wants to get married. Do you have couples coming into your practice saying, I don't want to, he does, or I don't want to, she does? And where does that lead? How do you, how do you structure, a, a, or how do you, how do you lead them to a path that doesn't lead to being contemptuous? That is exactly what is happening. And this, that same dynamic happened in a few years ago when California allowed gay marriage before it was taken away, and then it was brought back. So when that snippet of time, and I know I'll get the number of couples that got married in California, I'll get that number wrong, but it was you know, uh, uh, maybe 20,000 or 50,000. I wish I remembered that. So when all of a sudden it became possible for couples in California to get married, same-sex couples, they, um, they had a, we had a, uh, a huge flow overnight of couples calling saying, I proposed to my partner and he turned me down. Or we want to get married, but we're not sure if this is the right thing. We never knew that this would be on the table. And just yesterday, uh, this is starting again. I couldn't believe it. But yesterday, we got a call from a couple that had been together three months, proposed. They're getting married. They're in their late 20s. Um, and they said, and they said, we want to, we want to see a couple's counselor. We're, we do want to do some work on the relationship. It's nothing profound, but we just want to make sure we have it dialed in. But we don't want anybody to tell us to marginalize our experience just because we're only together three months and we're already getting married. And I thought to myself, like, I've, I've never had the experience of having a couple of protests from that place because that just has never been available. But uh, to the heterosexual community, that's been available, you know, uh, ever since, um, you know, chapels began in Las Vegas, where you could just, you know, get, you get, they'll, they'll marry several couples an hour. Now, I know Deborah, I know Deborah Hughes is going to have some thoughts about this because this is a generational thing. And, and so Deborah, uh, getting to know, because you, you know, your, and, and by the way, please give me a lesson in terminology and nomenclature. So Deborah is your wife, correct? correct. So, uh, you knew your wife how long before you two decided to get married? Well, we knew each other for about nine years, but we only dated, we got engaged 
with less than a year of dating. Okay, and and I think you had mentioned to me when we first met on the phone that you know that's something you know you might have taken more time if you were younger, but now you've sort of got the experience to understand what you you know what you want in a partner. And well, and listening to what Sam said, I I wouldn't marry a heterosexual couple who came to me and had only been dating for three months. I know they'll go ahead and get married somewhere else, but I wouldn't have married them. Um, it's very easy for one person to present themselves as someone different than they are for six months. But they usually can't make it past a year. Um, so an addiction might come out or uh, another profound issue uh, that you just you need some time for it to come out. And uh, so I, I had... I actually did say no to several heterosexual couples who didn't meet that requirement. And I was actually the one who proposed to Emily. And when we said, we said, we can't get married for at least a year after we get engaged because it hasn't been long enough. Uh, And she had been married to a man for 19 years earlier. So I got married and had a 41-year-old stepson and two grandchildren. And her comment was, this is huge. And I, I said, bye. You know, of course it is. But I felt very comfortable in having knowing her and feeling that it was the right thing, and um, you know, we're both. Um, I'm 55; she's 12 years older, and uh, we figured we wanted to spend our life together, and we we're ready to do that. So, so is, is it, remind me. So, it's the six month or the one year rule. What is it? What is the so, I won't marry anyone who hasn't been together for a year. Have you ever told a couple that, and they've said, "Okay, we'll stick with you. We want you to be our minister, and we'll just we'll put the date on hold." No, but I have had them get married by someone else. Clearly, there must be. I mean, this this is a case where okay, it's clear sexuality almost be this that then it becomes secondary, and I guess that's what you know many of us want in this society, right? Where it's just like, well, that happened. You happen to have your sexuality, but but now we're talking about these issues that really cross all boundaries. How long do you have to know somebody to trust them? And I'll ask a question. I can't imagine there's an answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is it easier? Should there be a longer period of getting to know somebody if you're a heterosexual for some reason than if you're a same-sex couple? You know, I, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm remembering that my mother um, had strong opinions about relationships and I didn't take them seriously. But there's an old joke in the lesbian community that, you know, the second date you get a U-Haul and move in. It's, of course, a stereotype, and it's not right. But it certainly was true, and I think that also was related to the closet, that people would be so grateful to have an opportunity. Um, I think in some ways we knew that people who came out later in life really didn't go through the normal adolescence and so would misunderstand the hormonic hormonal power of attraction and think they found the right person and would move in together um, but not get married and then well, so sh- so shouldn't there be almost an inverse relationship i mean if you're 50 should you not be able to trust your gut enough and say i only need 6 months i mean i you know pastor it's pastor hughes I, I, if I were 20, 30, I'd follow your rule, but I'm 50. Come on. I was shocked that um, when I told my family I was going to propose to Emily, they were all for it. We're sitting in the, in the in Denver in the kitchen, and the whole family wants to tell me how I should do it. And I expected them to say, as they had with almost anyone else that I had dated, shouldn't you wait a while and think this through? Uh, so there was an affirmation from my family there, and then also we had friends. But uh, I, I think it's very important. It, you know, If you're going to make a lifetime commitment, you really do want to know that person in the relationship. So as we tie, there are the two key strands now. So we've got the one-year rule, 
We've got the five to one ratio. Oh, I was going to bring it back to that too. I'm glad you did. (laughs) Because the five to one ratio, anybody can sustain that for a few weeks and a couple of months. That's exactly what I was thinking, Michael. I was like, okay, if we were going to, if we're going to make it, you know, have people get a little bit of skin in the game here and make this a little difficult, I would say, okay, what, what John found while we're talking about newlywed couples, John found that newlyweds, their ratio was actually 20 to one. And so 20 positive interactions for every one negative. And that's a lot. And after several months, it would go down to five to one. And I'm sure that where you've had couples come to you and say, yeah, we got married and I'm scared the love is wearing off. And now when people come and say that to me, I say, no, you're actually becoming normal. You're, You're going to five to one, which is where everybody else should be. So I would say if your partner can sustain that five to one ratio for like a year or whatever Deborah thinks might be appropriate. I think you've probably got a good person because it's hard to fake that for a full year or whatever. Unless I once did an interview with a guy who wrote a book. I, boy, I, some, something about psychopaths. Uh, I need to go back up and look up the title, but, but we called him the psychopath detector. He was, uh, I believe at Oxford or Cambridge, he was a psychology professor and just how good some people are at convincing you they are telling the truth when they are not. Uh, so there's always that chance that some somebody out there can sustain the five to one ratio, but it's but you're certainly reducing your odds of getting into a bad situation if they've sustained it for a year. So five to one. You know, I'm even thinking twenty to one because you know, let's face it, people you know people know when they're being lied to. You know, you don't want, especially as a parent, right? When you tell your kids, you know, first of all, you never want to say just great job in a broad way because that just, it's its so nondescript and it's not, it's not specific enough, right? But if, if you give a child five compliments that really aren't based in fact, they will know it immediately and certainly an adult will. So I guess that 5-1, that 5-1 is a quantitative measure, but there needs to be a qualitative underpinning. I think there's another piece in premarital counseling. Sometimes people think they can change their partner over time, and that's just never going to happen. Um, so if there really isn't an appreciation for those quirks and crazy things or that you can get to that point of, of uh, living with them, but if you have the expectation that's going to change, that's an unrealistic expectation. Also, couples often go into, or one person in a couple will have a vision of what marriage will look like. You know, in terms of economics, in terms of time, in terms of who will be present when, who's going to go to the soccer games, that doesn't match what the other person has imagined or won't match what happens in their life if there's a major economic change or a major physical change or a disease or or something else. Uh, and so if it's some kind of a Camelot that they've imagined, that's really not the same as getting married to a person. And, and so this happens no, no matter what? your sexuality is this this is something to struggle with but but as you as you talked about imagining a relationship i mean clearly heterosexual couples have a more background seeing examples that might trigger their imagination because there've been more marriages that they've had as models some of them not good marriages but still they've they've uh, you know i guess i wonder is 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 there 
a certain like, boy, this is very new to us, and what should we expect? Are there more questions from gay and lesbian and transgender couples? I would have to, and by the way, uh, just to take a step back, do you have any transgender couples in your in your practice, Sam? No, we don't, um, and I've never understood why, but uh, we've never really got asked that question. It must uh, have something to do with just the messaging or the you know, the pictures on the website or something. Because I, I was always curious, and maybe Deborah you know, can answer this, that, you know, when, when it went from gay and lesbian to LGBT to LGBTQ, uh, I'd even done a story on this some time ago and, and asked a transgender woman, uh, you know, you know, whether she feels like she is really part of this umbrella. And, and I think the answer was, roughly speaking, you know, sometimes she really does feel left out. Like she is like, this is not a, it's not like if you're transgender, you feel part of a cohesive community because you still feel very different from the other categories. At least that was one answer I got. Uh, I don't know what your experience is. And Deborah, would you, if you've had any experience on your end, either as a pastor in any other way? With transgender friends, yes. I think the um, the question about the cohesiveness between the gay and lesbian and a gay and lesbian, transgender, queer, uh, intersex, um, asexual communities is, is kind of fascinating because when you really think about it, if we use sex labors, now what do lesbians have in common with gay men? Um, and actually some of the most intense bonding happened around the AIDS crisis where there was a whole lot of activism and caregiving and response, again, to a horrible situation. Uh, and um, but, but there is a whole um, cultural connection and experience that's shared, and, and it will be interesting to see what will happen in the next 30 years as so much of, of what is a part of the culture doesn't happen. Now that people are out in the suburbs having kids, uh, it, it's a different world. I don't know what the impact will be there. And I wonder how it will impact the humor and I, the only reason I raise this is so we just did a I just did an episode on humor and Trevor Noah who's the South African comic who's going to be replacing John Stewart and I was talking to comedian Pete Dominic who's an old colleague of mine at CNN very funny stand-up comic and he was making the point that you know the the funniest comics out I mean there's a reason why the 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 comedy field has traditionally been dominated by blacks and Jews because they sort of have this shared history of oppression and clearly I'm already hearing that there's there's a lot of gay humor out there that maybe the rest of us haven't been exposed to in part originating from that shared experience of oppression i just wonder have, do you have a, a lot of laughs in the therapy room with your couples and and is it in any way connected to that shared experience or is or is that again a generational thing i mean are the you know 40 50 60 something gay couples laughing it up because they've got this shared experience and you know these 20 somethings they don't know how to laugh about their background because it's you know it's been a lot easier for them i don't know am i imagining this reading too much into it tell me both of you uh deborah you had a, a phrase i forget what, what you said about what that's called when you've you've had that shared experience of oppression it reminded um, me of what we call, at least in use it, when you use the Gottman method for couples therapy, we call it championing the struggle. And when a couple has been through a struggle, um, be it oppression or even a shared experience around overcoming, you know, like a major illness like cancer or something huge or overcoming a significant period of poverty or of 
strife in a family or something like that, when they, they can look back at it and they look at each other and they, they laugh about all of it uh, now because they both came out on the other end in one piece. And they can look back and remember that's, you know, they, they remember the, the high point, the high points and the bad points. They, uh, that becomes part of their shared meaning. It becomes part of the stuff that would evaporate if they happen to break up. And so that we know that as couples have more shared meaning, the more of those kinds of experiences that they have, the more likely they are to weather storms that come up along the way in the relationship. So I, I have wondered, back to your question, Michael, if younger couples, if they haven't had the experience of like really championing a struggle together, they, they do have, it's a little bit more uphill for them possibly. And then maybe like you're saying, like an older generation that's been through things together and they can look back and go, wow, even though maybe I didn't do all of that with you, I still remember it. And we can both now talk about how awful it was and parts of it that were great. Um, I think there's a lot of validity to what you're saying. And so, Deborah, I, I, I guess that seed was planted by a previous conversation I had with Deborah. This whole generational uh, obsession I have during this interview. But Deborah, Deborah, tell me in terms of your experience how you would react to that. Uh, to the issue about different ages. And- well, and also, also just the, uh, I guess coming off Sam's point about you know this idea of struggle. And and by the way, you know, I keep learning more and more about this. You know, first of all, every business magazine now is constantly writing about the importance of failure and struggle in order to succeed so in the business context. And um, I interviewed a, a, a very prominent psychologist who's had a big influence on our culture of parenting and education, Carol Dweck at Stanford, who wrote a book called Mindset, you know, where you know she 40 years ago, she tried to figure out why is it that some children she was studying relish the struggle of taking on a difficult challenge and others don't. And she found this distinction between different types of mindsets. One mindset's, you know, basically gave a person a feeling that you can get better with practice. You know, you can grow with practice and struggle. And others said, no, you're either born good, and, and this would translate to relationships. Look, we've either got it together or we don't. And the fact that we're struggling is a bad sign, as opposed to people who might say, no, no, struggle is sort of a normal part of life. And if we can get through the struggle, as you just said, Sam, we'll come out stronger. Have you seen this, Deborah, play out? Yes, and I think the um, you know myth is very powerful in our culture, and the myths that we tell make a difference. Similarly, I think the myths that we tell about struggle make a difference. Um, Susan Faludi wrote a book um, about a dozen years ago called The Terror Dream, and she looked at the way we were thinking about 9-11, for example, uh, and how it set us up to be uh, a culture that said, we're the good guys and those are the bad guys, uh, and we're out to save the world. Um, those kind of antagonistic myths uh, just perpetuate cycles of violence around the world. That this culture is bad, our culture is good, we're the good guys. Um, that doesn't resonate with human experience, and it's a, I think it's the kind of myth that um, destroys rather than constructs. So it's 
um, you can be engaged in a struggle that can actually be a negative struggle. You know, we're the winners. We're going to build the, you know, these are the classic biblical notions. We'll build the great big tower of Babel because we're the strongest, mightiest, and most powerful. And, of course, that good myth says that's all going to fall down because in the end, it's really how you treat your neighbor. Uh, I think one of the things about the struggle about marriage, for example, or the gay community, is that they are essential struggles about human value. They're struggles that say this this person deserves respect and value and support and and that's the kind of struggle that a, an illness like cancer takes you through. This is when you're not there's nothing about the stuff in your life that gets you through that. It, it's how you relate and how you're supportive and kind and the, the five to one or maybe fifty to one ratio that that's necessary. Um, when people share in that, um, I went had the opportunity to go to New Orleans and do some um, hurricane relief after Katrina. And to see some of the hope and the strength in people's lives that were absolutely devastated because they'd come into contact with the very core and fear that they faced. And and it, it was a privilege to see what people had uncovered in, in that relationship. And so I think that that's the, when people share in the struggle and it brings out what's best, what's gentlest, what's kindest, what's most courageous. Um, most generous than 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 that's bonding because you you see in that person um, something you didn't expect or you're so grateful for that support and that generosity. And so I, I think the kind of struggle matters a lot. I don't see you see couples who are engaging in competing um, in Wall Street with the same kind of satisfaction. So it's got to be the right kind of struggle. So so let's let's finish this off by circling back to you, Sam, and, and in not in the research, but in your therapy room. And as as you said, the breakdown of your your couples of your patients is a, about seventy percent gay men and about thirty percent lesbian. Um, t- tell us again, just to bring it back to that initial theme. Um, maybe there's something in the struggles that have brought them to your office, something qualitative that we can learn from your practice, but just tell us, you know, you know, you know, it, it occurred to me, probably most of you therapists don't have big social media presence and Twitter accounts because it's like, boy, you can't share what you're, what you're learning behind closed doors. Uh, you certainly can't give away identities, but, uh, you know, so, so we're not going to you know necessarily tweet this out, but, 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 but do tell me if there are, if there's anything else you can tell me from any you know, specific case studies without mentioning names or identities that might give us some more insight into maybe how we know when we're in a good struggle or, or a negative struggle. Um, although, although Deborah just gave us some good guidelines for it, so I think we can figure it out. But anything at all from your therapy practice that would make a difference in anybody's life? Well, I think what happens when you're when you go through a struggle or an experience, if not even a struggle, with another human being, be it of your sexual orientation or um, or just uh, opposite, whether you're um, uh, of the same gender or not. So this I think applies to heterosexual and gay and lesbian couples. So. If you experience that person as kind of on your team, that you're still part of it, that your your bond, your friendship is still intact, what happens, how that translates into your conflict when you, that you have conflict with one another is your attitude during the conflict comes out more of what's this rather than what the hell is this? 
so, and you can hear it in people's tones. And so that's when you talk, when you ask me, well, what do you hear in the office? That's what you hear. You hear two people that, you can hear two people that are arguing very loudly, but you can hear in their tone, they're coming from this curious, like, what's this place? And it's got sincerity to it, as if their their partner's viewpoint, though they don't agree, is somehow valid. And they're somehow on the same side of the, they're on the same team just kicking the soccer ball back and forth. When it's adversarial, you hear more of what's the he- what the hell is this? where they're kicking the soccer ball at a person and it's got that adversarial quality. So the magic really comes to how do you maintain that, that sameness and can you, and the answer that we've learned from 35 plus years now of John Gottman's research is you're always working on your friendship all the time. And that's really the key because when people are friends, they have conflict differently than, than couples who uh, have let their friendship go by the wayside. So uh, coming, if you can even remember, um, you know, when you're talking to your spouse or partner or loved ones that if you can come at it from that, what's this place rather than the, what the hell is this? You're, you're probably most of the way there, at least 70% of the way there. So it all comes down, after all this, it comes down to friendship. That fr- the friendship was really the foundation of, and actively, pers- where they both have a value system around keeping their friendship alive. Um, that's a huge, huge thing. It's not everything. Um, it's very possible for your friends to really break your trust. So, and it's very possible for your friends, sometimes when they argue with you, to be contemptuous. So we still got to fix those other things. It's not like just being friends is going to make, you know, make everything all roses. Two, Two friends in a relationship, two friends talking about sex and making it sound like they, they might be wanting to fix the roof, that. That, that might still work because it, it does. So friend, does friendship trump how you talk about sex? Oh, definitely. Because if you're friends, it's easier to talk about sex than with someone that is an adversary. I mean, that makes a very linear sense. Well, listen, I, I think there are so many takeaways from this conversation now. So, uh, uh, I, 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 th- I think hopefully everybody listening can go out either either improve their ratio they might take a little more time before they tie the knot whoever they are uh they're going to focus a little more on friendship they're going to maybe maybe be thankful for the struggles if they're the right struggles uh meaningful struggles uh that they have to endure together um boy there's so much so uh uh, for all that i thank you sam uh sam garanzini uh exec Executive Director of the Gay Couples Institute in San Francisco. Are, are you curious to, uh, wouldn't you love to spend a year just dealing with heterosexual couples? What, what do you want to learn? If I get a chance to talk to a, a couples therapist who only deals basically with heterosexual couples, what would you want me to ask him or her? You know, I, I would want to know, I always, uh, 
ad- really admire the other therapists in the Gottman Institute that really have no experience dealing with same-sex couples. They just, you know, often are in a location in the country where they don't end up seeing it. And they will tell me stories about very significant uh, conflicts that heterosexual couples will have that I've never seen a gay or lesbian couple have, particularly around the the level of volatility uh, and where they have brought couples back from extreme contempt. Um, and um, I would I would just say, how do you do that? Is there what's what what do you pull out of your toolkit that you know you can rely on? that really helps that kind of situation because I haven't had to deal with it that much in my clinical career. You know, that's so fascinating. I mean, I'm I'm so glad I asked you that question because the idea that therapists are seeing this pattern that you don't see among same-sex couples, the level of volatility that that their relationships can reach, that's just absolutely fascinating to me. So, so Deborah, I just did anything in your experience that, that speaks to that? Yeah, no, I, you know, I was thinking about um, my wife was right now that we're almost to our third year anniversary. Marriage is huge. Uh, and uh, I, I actually had no idea. And I am just so grateful that I'm in this lifetime gotten the opportunity to experience it. That, that word being grateful, and Ms. Smith, that's another word that I guess we can all learn from. Uh, so, well, we will. Uh, uh, I'll certainly have. Uh, I'll certainly be reaching out to some therapists. Uh, from the other side uh, and, and, and to, to compare notes, because I really do think that's, that is fascinating. And I wonder, you know, just one last observation I had, I guess, from reading some of the research is that it's too early to know whether same-sex marriages will tend to have more longevity than heterosexual marriages. Uh, you know, based on what I'm hearing from you, I, 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 I don't know, but one would think... Uh, one would think yes, uh, just because of that reduced contemptuousness and the less volatility. On the other hand, the early numbers from what I've read don't necessarily bear that out. Yeah, that's what I've read, too. So, well, that'll be interesting to see. Thank you once again to you and to Deborah Hughes, uh, president and CEO of the Susan B. Anthony Museum and House, dedicated to a, a, a different struggle. Uh, but uh, uh, next time I visit Rochester, I've never visited Rochester, but now I have a, a, a reason to. So th- thank you both for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, thank you Sam. So the Wavemaker podcast is over, except I was just talking to Deborah Hughes about that subject she brought up, about the the code and the not mentioning your last name, just until really until the late 80s, you know, where you, know, you would keep your sexuality hidden if you were gay or lesbian. And Deborah just started sharing a little bit more about that code. So Deborah, just tell me a few very specific anecdotes of just how secretive you had to be, uh, you know, not just in your general life, but in your profession as a member of the clergy. Right. I, I, um, I remember going to a, an event at um, Stony Point at a conference center with a bunch of female clergy, and a, a friend said, there's some women here who want to know if uh, they can invite you to something that's going on after hours, but they didn't know if you'd want to be invited or if they should invite you. So here's my friend who's straight asking me, I think about whether I want to go to a lesbian gathering. And I said, sure. And that night at the worship service, I opened my bulletin and here's a typed note that tells me where they're meeting and when. And and this again is what year? This is 1988 in Stony Point, New York. 
and uh, we, there was a reception and the room we were going to meet in was after that and, and everybody's staying way too long having way too good a time and you, you can start to see who's going to be a part of this gathering because you know, we had um, celebrities we would mention we had um, sports we would mention we had things we would talk about that would send a signal to someone there was also different ways of making on, eye contact different ways of standing uh, there was a whole a whole code to communicate so it became clear that there were about 15 people still in the room who weren't invited so wait this code to communicate was this just something that evolved i mean was it there a handbook how how did you know you would you would learn it from people um, there were some ways you would the, there was a little bit of lesbian fiction you might read about some of the references there um, and you but more often you would pick it up from people socially uh, who would let you know um, there was there were some artists and you would mention oh I've, I've got a Chris Williamson album. Oh, yeah, I've got Chris Williamson. Ah, that would be a pretty clear thing that joked about. Everyone would mention softball even if they'd never played it. You know, it would be, oh, I have friends who play softball. Um, there are other other references like that. Um, Judy Garland was a reference in the community. Rainbows uh, were references. And those would be ways that you could you could drop something like that. And based on how a person responded, you were telling them, I'm safe. Judy Garland is on my uh running playlist when I jog and I love Stephen Sondheim musicals so I would probably in that crowd have been you know oh he's given us the signal sending yes but, at least mixed signals yes, right. <laughs> so 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 uh, but it's and we laugh about it now but that's that's pretty amazing that as recently as 1988 you had a body language code a, a language a verbal language code and as you just told me you, you wouldn't necessarily even be able to share with people who you met and how you met them if it was at one of those gatherings. You would never make a reference to, to having met someone at, at a social gathering. It was a gay and lesbian gathering, or, or often even to meeting them. That night, we had this group gather um, after hours, and, and someone actually put Bibles on the bottoms of the curtains so that it wouldn't blow in the breeze and people might see in the window. And here's just a room full of ten women gathered to have a conversation and we're worried that someone's going to see us talking together uh, but the stories that were shared that night were incredibly powerful one woman who was my age whose partner had cancer and um, she was serving her church by day and at night she was holding her partner's head as she was sick from the chemotherapy and the church had no idea that this person in her 20s who was giving care to them was taking care of a, of a partner who might be dying uh, incredible stories. and But what shocked me more than anything was when I saw those people about six months later at a denominational event, they wouldn't even make eye contact. They were so afraid of association that even in a public setting, they, we didn't know each other. So when you hear those stories, and now you hear the Supreme Court might make a decision that 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 makes it possible for same-sex marriages to be recognized and are more likely to be recognized in every state of the union. The continuum, it's almost like not even a continuum. It's like a huge, huge canyon that, that you've leapt over. It's unbelievable. And, of course, there are still places in this country where people are speaking code and communicating and are terrified that if they leave the um, social setting, they might get physically abused. That's absolutely true for people in the transgender community, where there's a tremendous amount of intimidation and abuse. Uh, and so, yes, I, in my lifetime, are you, are you kidding me? To have gone from that place to this place where I'm a married grandmother, uh, is it's, uh, I haven't caught up with it completely. 
Well, thank you for, uh, I, I, I'm appreciative that the code's been broken and thank you for sharing the code with us. And, uh, uh, and that is the end of this wave maker episode. Thank you, Michael. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.